0: Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have Amar and Brian, and we're discussing uh, their paper that they co-wrote with Davy Jones, uh, Ecofascism, an Examination of the Far-Right Ecology Nexus in the Online Space. So there's kind of two threads going into this show and going into our broader series on ecofascism. One is, I live in the state of Colorado, and the state of Colorado is this kind of unique Of political environment where we have a lot of far right thinking, a lot of libertarian thinking meshed with environmental, you know, uh, preserve the mountains, preserve the wild kind of politics in our politics. And it's kind of uh, as we go along, as the Colorado River begins to dry up, as uh, inhabiting small towns in the South becomes harder, we kind of see this play out in our politics, in our state politics. And the second thread going into the show is a conversation, is part of the conversation we had with Emmy on sort of narrative design and the online. And one of the examples that we spoke to about with Emmy was about the problem of Teddy K on TikTok, on Ted Kaczynski on TikTok. So initially, my journey on TikTok was that I started uh, with an activist historian on monkey wrenching, on sabotage in the Northwest of logging operations and stuff like that. So I followed the historian, liked his content. And then a couple of days later, it got to the point where it was armed protesters threatening for strangers. There was no violence, but there was the threat of violence. And I said, OK, I'm not going to favor that. I'm not going to follow it. Scroll through. And then by the third day, I started getting Skull Mask and Teddy K content, right? And it wasn't direct Teddy K. It was quotes from Teddy, Ted Kaczynski. And it was just like, huh. So I started with monkey wrenching and historical work, ended up with extremism. So that is kind of this interesting journey going into this conversation that I want to discuss with Amar and Brian. So anyway, with all that being said, please welcome Amar and Brian. How are you? Good. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, doing real well, Cena. Thanks. Awesome. Awesome.
0: So I want to maybe start off with, um, we were kind of discussing this uh, off air, and I kind of want to bring that conversation up. On air, which is what is ecofascism? I think uh, recently the concept of ecofascism has has come up in, in the discourse and conversation, uh, but it's always, it's never well defined. It's always, you, you kind of have to take the phrase as is. So I want to start our conversation there. What is ecofascism and what are some of the key threads and ideas that go into ecofascism?
1: I think that that was the question we were setting out to answer uh, when we began work on this paper. Uh, and I don't think that it's a question that's fully resolved yet uh, either. You know, there's there's really uh, a big mixed up tangle of issues and problems uh, related to the pressures of our environmental crisis and extremism and right-wing politics the far right, the extreme right, and none of these are really uh, easy to um, separate from the others. Uh, Everything feeds into everything else. Everything seems to overlap. So we were trying to figure out, well, what can we do to at least begin uh, untangling this so that we're not saying that eco-fascism is everything or that nothing is eco-fascism either. Uh, And we took as our our starting point uh, the critique that a lot of scholars uh, have had over the years, which is that um, the far right uh, as a political project uh, will often make appeals to the environment as a way of shoring up support, um, but as a practical matter, uh, when the far right uh, or the extreme right or the center right uh, gets into power, Uh, There's really um, little to no change in terms of their fundamental policies uh, as relate to the environment. Uh, The far right fascism, uh, especially, is expansionist and industrialist and um, generally very hostile to the idea of international cooperation and international governance in a way that uh, would even appear to threaten uh, national sovereignty. Um, So that means that as a practical matter when far right parties get into power. uh, They don't take good steps on climate change to take the most obvious example, because in order to take uh, good steps to mitigate the effects of climate change. We need international governance. There needs to be international cooperation and trust uh, between between bodies. And that's precisely uh, one of the things that the far right is worst at. So we said, Okay. That sounds legit. Uh, far right ecologism, as Balsa Labarta calls it, uh, is not a very uh, effective political program. Well, what is ecofascism then? People are talking about ecofascism. People on the extreme right are discussing ecofascism. What are they talking about when they talk about ecofascism? And uh, so, to, to answer that question, we began looking at uh, the, the actual empirical data, which in this case is. Uh, media content. Posts. Posts on Instagram, posts on Twitter, posts on Telegram. And uh, we tried to parse out uh, these uh, data points, these these posts that are being labeled as eco-fascist by the people who are producing them. Well, what do they have in common? And then how do we analyze that to make sense uh, of those commonalities?
2: Yeah maybe maybe I'll go a bit broader because I th- I think you know um one of the assumptions and this was in your uh, uh earlier discussion as well is that that there's an assumption of course that some of these things are naturally movements or naturally groups right and I think um a good way to understand ecofascism is that it's it's not necessarily a movement it's not necessarily a group um it's more of an aesthetic um and at, at, and I think it ties into a lot of other things that are broadly far so, right so right so if you look at Um, Far-right politics more generally, you have at the core of it things like ethno-nationalism, right? So the the membership of a nation uh, is tied to kind of biological, racial, or cultural traits. And so um, it's not generally how we think of nationalism, right? If you're an American nationalist or if you're a um, Tamil nationalist or something like that, you're not necessarily tying it to um uh, certain biological traits as as, uh, as 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 some of these ecofascists would um and it's also characterized by authoritarian tendencies as well and so um the ethno-nationalism component though is is quite important here because it, it, it's um it's here that you see uh kind of the biological identity racial identity becomes saturated with um ecological imagery right and so they they, they kind of uh Landscape uh, becomes a kind of ethnoscape. Um, And so the land becomes kind of um, uh, the or the land or the region becomes kind of symbolically charged um, and and symbolically charged. And it's that kind of sacredness of the land that ties together the uh, racial group over time, right? And so there's no real commonality between, you know, white people from the 16th century and white people from today, except if you look at it through that kind of symbolic um, uh, racialized uh, imagery, right? And so what what ties a group of people across time, across space, um, you need a kind of symbolic imagined element um, to that to make it work. Um, so the land becomes sacred because your people lived in it, right? Your people lived in it from time immemorial. Um, and so this is where you get, um that sacredness of that land therefore can become corrupted by outsiders right can become correct corrupted by foreigners by industrialization um and things like that and so this is where um if you look at you know patrick cruzius's and and uh, manifesto um and and the kind of 2019 attack is when i think a lot of everyday people started hearing this word in the mainstream this is when i was kind of first asked about it by journalists and so on is when patrick cruzius um um, attacked a Walmart uh, frequented by Mexican immigrants, right? And so uh, this was this notion of these uh, foreigners invading this kind of sacred space. Um, and he called himself um, uh, a kind of eco-fascist waging environmental warfare. <laughs> I think that's a direct quote. Environmental warfare, um uh, or, or what he saw as environmental warfare of immigration, right? And, and so uh, th- this is where I think there's a nexus with the far right um, ideas, this, this notions of ethnoscape, notions of um, biological racial purity, etc., which which is then tied to the, tied to the land.
1: Yeah, I think that um we can what we did what we did um in in the paper I, I, if I recall correctly it has been a little but um what what we said ultimately is that this ecofascism that we're talking about it belongs to what you call the register of the imaginary. Um, it, it exists as sort of a dream and an aesthetic, as, a, as Amar said, uh, that uh, people can look to for inspiration, and they can associate with in this imagined community uh, of blood and soil that, that Amar described just now. Um, but when you when you get into the more um, hard material uh, matters, you know, like laws. And um, uh, markets and technologies and things like that, uh, ecofascism fascism kind, kind of uh, disintegrates. Uh, it, it doesn't really. Um, it, it's not sustainable in that harder and more material realm. It really exists in the register of the imaginary as an aesthetic, and then what we would call the the register of the real, which is the the sort of in um, the the non negotiable moment of violence, right? The 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 t- the the attacks, basically, those are the two places where ecofascism, as such, exists. It doesn't exist as a governing um, a, a governing philosophy.
0: interesting. so that idea of that ecofascism invests itself in the register of the imaginary and then the register of the real. so aesthetics and violence. Um, and there. If I'm understanding it correctly, they're not really interested in a governing position. They're not interested in laws. They're not interested in governance. The problems of governance. Is it, am I getting that correct?
1: I, I don't know if I would say that n- no one who identifies with ecofascism or as an ecofascist is interested in those things. I think there probably is some interest in trying to formulate those things but as a practical matter and as a matter of historical record uh it just doesn't um it, it doesn't work out like that uh ecofascism and e- the ecologism of the extreme right uh don't seem to translate into um a governing process
2: and and this is kind of what we call in the paper the uh, the kind of impossibility of ecofascism right is this idea that um fascism's Modernist tendencies are actually environment destroying <laughs> um, um they 're very expansionist they 're expansionist militarism um, and it's uh, fascism at its core is and is um you know fundamentally at odds with ecology right and so there, it, what we mean by impossibility there is, is kind of a there's a contradiction baked into the very fabric of what we mean by eco fascism so on the one hand. Um, you have to believe that not all land is the same because, you know, some land produces better, more fit humans than other land. Um, but if you go back to kind of uh, the Third Reich, for example, you know, Hitler believed that scarcity, that environmental scarcity was a fact of existence, right? He didn't know what to do with the fact that we're going to eventually run out of things. So what, he, what did he do? He said, I'm going to expand, Right. And so uh, this notion of Lebensraum, right, living space, we're going to kind of take over more and more land, we're going to take over more and more land, Uh, uh, the kind of expansionist component of it immediately comes in here. So the idea of scarcity uh, and the need to germanize more and more land basically means that you add a kind of racial component to it. So there are people that are not worthy of living on this land that is now necessary for the pure race, right? So disabled people, racially weak people were all wiped out under the Third Reich for this reason, right? And so um, these people are simply taking up space that we need for better and more biologically superior people. Um, And so uh, at the core of it, uh there's a kind of militarist the core of fascism there's a militarist expansionist component which doesn't necessarily work um with what's at the core of ecology which is conservation and preservation if that makes sense
0: no it 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 does it really does and um i kind of want to maybe kind of while we're on this thread kind of examine the impossibility of it so how does a adherent of ecofascism like when met when they engage with the political how what is that maneuvering is it truly just like posts and aesthetics and then mass violence or is there is there an example of when ecofascism tried to explicitly enter the political realm and try to have a political implementation of the ideas of their ideas
1: uh there, there's a there's a really excellent um book um edited by uh, Bernard Faulkner uh, I'm probably butchering his pronunciation I'm sorry Bernard um published by Rutledge. um uh, let me uh look it up right now the title is um the far right in the environment uh and it's uh nothing but case studies uh of how um the far right has um Claimed that it will implement uh, ecological uh, policies, and then and then failed to do so. Um, I think that the um, uh, the Lega du Nord in Italy is one example that we discuss in our in our paper. Um, Talked a good game, um, and then at most, uh, it it, uh, implemented you know some some very uh, uh, tepid, um, uh, and I I believe even market based um, fig leaf type uh, environmental um, policies uh, when when it had you know its chance, so to speak. You know, I think though that what the the question itself gets gets at this. Split between the possibility and the impossibility of ecofascism. Ecofascism is impossible in, uh, in, in the realm of politics and policy and markets and technology, but it's highly possible in the realm of the aesthetic. So there, there's, there's really, and, and our politics is highly aestheticized particularly in the United States, which is where my own research you know focuses on um, I think there's there's generally a, a kind of understanding uh, among uh, voters uh, or people who don't bother to vote even that uh, there's very little the individual can do to affect the uh, political process and that the the greatest um, nexus of power that's available to an ordinary person is in um, manipulating uh, their media uh, consumption, on one hand, or their media output, on the other hand. Um, So people, people are disengaged increasingly from electoral politics, and they're increasingly engaged in curating their media diets. And uh, and posting, you know, producing uh, producing user generated media, and that's really where the the possibility of ecofascism comes into play. It's extremely easy to create just a diet, as you yourself saw, so, you know, with TikTok. It's um, it's trivially easy to create a diet, uh, a media diet of this stuff that can occupy more or less your entire day. And um, I, I think that this also though gets at another issue which is that because, because the possibility of eco-fascism is ephemeral and aesthetic, and it really kind of only exists in dancing lights on a screen of a machine that um, is extremely environmentally unfriendly to, to produce. Um, uh, eco it it may not have a very long shelf life. You know, we see this um all the time, every few months, every six months, every year, every year and a half. There has to be a new aesthetic or, or ideological flavor of the month uh for the, the online extreme right. Um, because at, at its at its heart, the extreme right doesn't have a lot of new ideas. It's really, um, you know, it's, it's really a, a project of um, uh, taking the leash off of, uh, you know, some very dark human impulses to dominance um, and, um, well, just to dominance and supremacy. Uh, and ecofascism is uh, a, an aesthetic hook to hang that on for the time being. But as it is with, with all media in our day and age, uh, there there's a um, just a relentless churn where things have to, um, w- we need new images, we need new memes, uh, and we need we need new ideological fashions that we can put on to justify what are otherwise uh, just sort of base human impulses uh, towards greed and cruelty.
2: The far right needs to put out a greatest to tell them as as frequently as possible because yeah it doesn't have any new records right um i, I mean what's what's inter- what's 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 interesting about uh the aesthetic component that that, that brian mentions is it, um it does get used by politicians right when when it's necessary i mean i the the famous case of um uh marine uh, marine le pen in france who basically or one of the one of her party uh Members basically said, you know, the greatest ally of the ecology is the border. Right. And so they they, they have ta- they have politicians have tapped into uh these aesthetics and 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 sometimes the kind of visceral impact and resonance that they have to try to pass anti-immigration legislation or or, or push those kinds of um policies. And so I think people understand. You know, it does exist in the realm of the aesthetic, and um, but it has it has resonance, um, and and you can kind of tap into it when when needed, politically speaking.
1: Right, it it motivates a base, and it can motivate an individual to commit you know an act of mass murder, but if you were to actually implement. That um, th- that motivating rhetoric that Amar uh, just um, you know cited from Le Pen, this idea that um, borders are uh, you know inherently ecological is false. It's absolutely the opposite of reality. The harder the border, the worse that is for the environment. We see that at uh, the southern border in the United States. The hardening of the southern border is terrible. For the flora and fauna uh that that exist along that uh that exist in that region um borders are bad for the environment not good
0: (laughs) so then uh while we're on the topic of politics i i kind of want to kind of make the question explicit which is we we kind of when examining far right adjacent spaces or kind of interpretations of fascism, we kind of run into this question, which is, how racist and misogynistic is it? Um, Which is kind of a crass formulation of the question. Uh, Amar, you've kind of already touched on the ethnoscape, the idea of ethno-nationalism being inseparable from eco-fascism. And Brian, you've touched on the, the issue of the border playing into sort of policy stuff. I'm curious, you know, you know, how misogynistic is it? What is the role of the woman, the female versus the male? Is it, you know, what is their understanding? What is their sort of explanation for, you know, those ideas?
2: I mean, the... The I mean, one of the one of our studies, the second study mentioned in the paper uh, largely looked at looked at some of the images around this. And of, of course, it was kind of inundated with, you know, white women's essential purity, uh, their true role uh, being procreation, their importance and kind of making sure the white race survives in kind of a David Lane esque way. Um, and, and this kind of constant juxtaposition between um, men and women. Uh, how men and women used to be in the past this kind of idealized golden age of of, um, of the past and how they are now and a need to kind of re- return to this idealized past right that that's something about uh, modernity about um, kind of diversity pluralism outsiders the other is eroding um, the kind of essential purity of, of the white race that needs to be um, uh, regained right and so I th- I think that that was quite prevalent in our data um the pictures of landscapes and you know white women holding white babies in front of white landscape or green landscapes um was was all over the place and so i i do think there's a um the gender side of it was interesting because i think that's also missing in the broader um literature on ecofascism. so i, I you know I, I was kind of um happy we included that component but the, but it, it's it's all over the place right it, it's quite uh baked into the ideology as well
1: Yeah, shout out to Maria Darwish, who is working on this very uh, issue uh, right now. Um, Check out her work on on gender uh, and ecology and the extreme right. Uh, It's well worth it. Um, You know, I think that the the question of whether uh, how racist, how sexist, how misogynistic, how uh, anti-Semitic eco-fascism is, it it varies um, from region to region um, because, uh, you know, different uh, different national uh, fascist um, formations have different um, ways of mythologizing themselves in relation to the land. Um, In the United States, uh, you could say that the the eco-fascist imaginary uh, is uh, inextricably tied up with the genocide uh, of the Native Americans and um, the enslavement um, of Africans uh you you can't have the uh, the white relationship to the land in the United States absent those things. Um, and I think that uh, all over, we see an inherent anti-Semitism uh, implicit, if not explicit, It's more often than not explicit, but even if it weren't, um, in, uh, in eco-fascist uh, uh, imagery and media, um, because of this um, myth, of the Jew as a uh, a rootless cosmopolitan, so being rootless, um, uh, Jews can't possibly belong to uh, the the same soil as as the folk do. Uh, so therefore, they're they're inherently um, uh, alien and inherently uh, a corrupting influence. It's baked in, in other words.
0: That's interesting to me, and and I think somebody asked this on Twitter, which is how do we conceptualize indigenous people to this thinking? I think the idea of an ethnoscape, the idea that the land is for white people. I mean, like, how do you, how do you like in in the United States, at least, how do you like sync up that thinking with the fact that with indigenous people who were there, like, you know, in the Southwest, the Navajo, the Apache, whatever, like how how does an eco-fascist sync up the genocide of indigenous people with their idea of preserving the land? Is it really just like that basic interpretation of white supremacy, like it's white land, not indigenous land, not for people of color? Or what is that sort of thinking?
1: Well, this is where we get into the impossibility of eco You're, you know, you're asking for like a, a well-reasoned, Ideological explanation of why uh, you know the the soil of North America belongs to the descendant of a you know of of Irish and German and you know English people and not to um, you know the descendants of um, of uh, the the Cherokee or whomever um, it 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 ain't there you're not going to find it there's kind of a there's sort of a blurry way of eliding these issues. Um, sometimes it, it's done in sort of a might makes right uh, kind of rationalization, which is that the genocide worked, that, therefore that's its own justification. And then sometimes there's kind of a, a, a rhetorical jujitsu that can happen where um, the language of indigeneity is applied uh, to, um, to Europe, for example, as a way of uh, arguing against um, immigration into Europe from outside of Europe. Uh, by saying that this is analogous to uh, the genocide of the Native Americans in the United States. Um, but, you know, a, the, this gets back to Ted Kaczynski a little bit. One of the reasons why Ted Kaczynski is, I think, so popular, and why his appeal transcends left and right, in some cases, he definitely has plenty of admirers on the left as well, um, is because Ted Kaczynski, if you read his manifesto, it's a it's a reasoned Manifesto, he makes an effort to create arguments, uh, support his arguments, uh, address possible objections to his arguments. It, you know, it's a it's a thoughtful and logical or it's an attempt at a thoughtful and logical um, piece piece of writing. Um, that that doesn't exist uh, outside and beyond Ted Kaczynski. And you know, I have all kinds of sort of Marshall McLuhan media ecology theories about why that might be. You know, Ted Kaczynski was writing his manifesto on a uh, typewriter with jumpy keys, limited amount of ink, limited amount of paper, not a lot of distractions, living out in a cabin, not a cell phone in sight. And he, uh, in that kind of a writing situation, a person is more inclined to uh, think through what they're about to say before they say it, you know, to outline their thoughts. Uh, and to um, have those internal uh, imaginary dialogues between yourself and your critics uh, before you finally put pen to paper or start typing. Um, When you compare that to the eco-fascist so-called manifestos that have been coming out for the past four or five years, uh, you see just the opposite. You just see a flurry of copying and pasting uh, among one another, um, the uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I won't go into too many specifics there, um, but but you don't see well reasoned arguments. You see basically argument by hyperlink and argument by um, copy pasta. Uh, so that's that, that's not the kind of communication that lends itself to um, a well thought out political program, much less a consistent or coherent ideological position.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, the, the the question of how do white American colonists justify their treatment um, or attachment to the land? I, I mean, I think that that goes back to kind of, you know, the French Indian Wars and War of 1812 and so on. It, it, but it, it did kind of it's in that heat of the conflict that this notion of like race, religion, nationhood was kind of forged right and this notion of manifest destiny that somehow uh, the kind of Christian nationalist Jesus gave us this land um, aspect I think um, ties in here I don't know I haven't heard too many eco-fascists talk in that language though um, but that might be just because I'm looking in the wrong place but I, I, I do think Christian nationalism um, justified the treatment of indigenous and, and black Americans um, along those lines, right, a kind of fusion of race, race, religion and and nationhood. Um, so it's and, and, and I mean, they did it seamlessly. Right. So I don't I don't um, I don't I don't get the sense that it was a. <laughs> that it was a kind of internal struggle about how to how to justify their treatment of the other um it, it came quite naturally just just by reading the bible and um so on um and so uh, i imagine if you kind of interrogated an eco-fascist uh he would he would speak in he or she would speak in very similar tones but but you're right i mean i haven't seen i don't know if brian has but i haven't seen any kind of overt attempt to justify it along those lines
1: the closest thing that i've seen uh, a previous study that i did on um what was called pine tree twitter i guess it's still called pine tree twitter it's just not as much a thing anymore um you you, you saw uh uh, christian homesteader types Mm -hmm. uh mixing in similar online networks as self-professed eco-fascists, you didn't see a lot of overlap. You didn't see a lot of self-professed over uh, self-professed eco-fascists who were also Christian homesteaders uh, or vice versa. But you know they followed each other on Twitter.
0: so then, um Brian, you bring up this interesting idea that uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, is kind of transcends the left and the right so then kind of going on that thread you know is there horseshoeing in this space like in the sense that i know that's very slang um but like my intellectual kind of introduction to environmentalism has always been kind of greenpeace um people who are doing monkey wrenching in the northwest like pacific northwest you know sabotaging logging operations and and they were Politically, they would identify as leftists, as socialists, as something. And so in sort of thinking about the aesthetics and the, the political and the political side of things, do you see like a horseshoeing? Is there sort of a space where the left and the right kind of agree here? Like, you know, whether it's pivoting on using the imagery of, of Ted Kaczynski or something deeper.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't say horseshoeing because, again, that implies more coherent um, ideology than I think we see here. Um, instead, what I think uh, we can talk about are um, emotional bridges or um, affective bridges that can take people um, from, from, one, um, from one set of beliefs to another, um, I guess before I say anything else, I'll just say that I, I, I don't think that Kaczynski quite transcends left and right. A lot of people on the left like Ted Kaczynski and have uh, adopted him as a mascot uh, of this or that. But um, you know, the the manifesto uh, is is explicitly critical of the left in a way that it's not explicitly critical of the right. So you know, we should be clear about that. Um, but but there are there are uh, ways that you can get from that older um, kind of environmentalism that you were just talking about uh, to the, this eco-fascist imaginary. Uh, you know, I think that one of the um, the, the biggest bridges um, that, that a person can cross from one to the other is through this mysticism that um, uh, connects both um, deep ecology, which can be on the left. Um, and eco-fascism. So this idea that there's a a sort of mystical connection to the land, that there's a a spirit to the land that's sort of ineffable and um, better (laughs) than the human spirit sort of goes along with a lot of the um, anti-humanist attitudes that we found in this eco-fascist content. Um, That anti-humanism, that romantic idea of the land, um, that, that sort of mystical attachment to it as well. Um, a, a person who is maybe not very ideologically um, consistent, coherent, or, or interested in ideology at all, can can cross that bridge from a generally left-wing deep ecology into a right-wing eco-fascism through that connecting sentiment of mysticism and anti-humanism and this romanticized uh, uh, attitude towards the natural world I don't know does that make sense that felt like a lot of words
2: (laughs) no I I think I think you're right I mean I I would add the 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 kind of spiritualizing of the natural world is is held very much in common um on the left by people like um Arno Ness um uh, the Norwegian kind of deep ecologist who who basically said you know um, when we're making our moral philosophies or our, pol- or our policies um, uh, with rela- in, in relation to the outside world, you have to take into account the sanctity of the earth as much as you do the sanctity of human life, right? And so, uh, which is not what we do in modernity or capitalism or anything like that, right? And so this idea that um, the earth and all life on earth, including humans must be seen as on a kind of equal plane um uh, within the realm of moral consequence uh before you make any kind of decisions um I, th- I think there's some commonality there but of course um for you know groups like earth first or animal life rights Liber- animal liberation front etc um they wouldn't go uh, or or the ecofascists wouldn't go as far as them to say that somehow there's a kind of equality between uh the earth and animals and 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 the white race for instance right and so I, I do think there's a there's a slight difference there in terms of who should be whose moral consequence needs to be taken into account more than others whereas in the left i think um they've gone um very hyper equality right so Arno Ness, for example basically says like all life from protozoa to humans is of equal moral value, which I don't know, if, <laughs> I'm not sure that eco-fascists would go there. Um, and so there, there is a difference, um, it, but, but uh, Brian's right in that the kind of spiritual core of um, life and the earth uh, is, is held in common uh, between both sides.
1: And you know, I don't. I'm not going to name any names because some of this does fall into the realm of conjecture and the sort of accusations that fly back and forth across fringe political movements. But some of the people who were involved in um, uh, the ELF and the ALF have since taken a right turn in their attitudes, um, and it, it usually comes from a, an anti-humanist or a misanthropic. Uh, uh, tendencies that they already had. Um, It's very easy to go from a general misanthropy to a directed misanthropy, you know, against immigrants, uh, Jews, what have you. And that seems to have been actually the case study trajectory of at least a couple folks who were prominent in those 90s and 2000s, um, broadly left um, ecological direct action, maybe terrorist uh organizations and movements
2: yeah it's, it's, um there's also commonality as you say between this notion of like it, uh, collapse is necessary right for rejuvenation um so there is there are some on the left uh, particularly the um earth first types who would uh maybe agree with some aspects of of the eco fascist side um but I think I don't know. I, I feel like they would have much more to disagree about than, than agree about. But um, yeah, th- there's a kind of uh, rhyme there, if you will. Um, yeah. Yeah, so
1: it comes down to temperament more than more than logic and reason. Um, you know, the the desire to the, the the sense of aggrieved entitlement. I think is really one of the 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 core things. That will get you from being a left-wing environmentalist to being a right-wing quote-unquote environmentalist. Uh, When a sense of entitlement is thwarted uh, that's when people go looking for scapegoats and easy answers and um, eco-fascism grafts the easy answers and uh, enemies uh, of the extreme right onto the aesthetics uh, and um, sort of lip service to uh, our environmental needs and the beauty of the natural world, uh, so you know it's it's easy for a person to take that bridge from point A to point B too.
0: So I, I want to switch over and and sort of look at the paper that you've written directly. And one of the cool things about the paper, I think, is you you begin to structurally understand ecofascism's online influence so the my question is you know what was the method, methodological approach you know what kind of platforms were you looking at what was kind of the media and posts you were kind of looking for you know what was that sort of method what was the approach basically
2: um yeah i can start on that i, I mean i think Part of it was so, you know, I, I have a uh, fairly active uh, Telegram scraper and a Twitter scraper kind of ongoing, just vacuuming up the internet, <laughs> vacuuming up the dark corners of the internet. Um, and so I think part of um, when this call came out for the special issue on climate, uh, climate change and terrorism, um, we got to talking about how can we get a sense of not necessarily the prevalence of ecofascism. In the far right spaces because that 's a different research question and a bit uh, a bit harder uh, to answer, especially when you 're dealing with the amount of content uh, that 's out there, so we took a kind of different approach which was let 's come up with um, let's pick the eco fascist channels that from our um, you know uh, brian 's expertise and our expertise to look at how can you identify eco fascist terrorism uh, telegram channels eco fascist Twitter channels. Um, and then uh kind of look at just the eco-fascist ecosystem <laughs> um much more closely, right? And so we did we ended up doing kind of two studies. One of them um was to look at uh we created a kind of again, my, my memory, my memory is gonna hit me here, but I think I think part of it is we, we created a list of 20 or 25. Um, well-known eco-fascist thinkers um, and then we basically searched those names throughout the telegram data that we had so we had data from uh, 2019 to 2020 and uh, it was tens of thousands of telegram posts and we basically asked a basic question of who are they talking about most Um, and so uh, we we talk about kind of the influential thinkers um, in study one study two was uh, extracting Um, photos, basically, of um, well-known telegram channels and groups. And I think Twitter came in here as well. Um, um, And then so we basically, again, just took a kind of uh, random sample of uh, a couple dozen photos or a couple hundred photos and looked at what are the main themes. And so this is when the uh, gender theme that we talk, spoke about earlier uh, became very prominent, and so uh, the so the research question wasn't necessarily the prevalence of ecofascism on the internet, which is a um, harder question to answer, especially if, because all three of us don't really have the computing skills to pull that off. Um, but uh, we took a much more qualitative approach of let's find the ecofascism online and figure out what the um, who they're talking about and what they're talking about.
1: I remember um, years ago, uh, I don't want to date myself too much, but I was in, you know, I was in uh, an extreme right online space, you know, just snooping around and seeing what people had to say and there was a poll that was conducted, uh, asking people what their Precise, um, uh, precise niche affiliation was, you know, are you a fascist? Are you a neo-fascist? Are you a neo-Nazi? Uh, are you uh, an, an America first paleo-conservative? Or are you an eco-fascist? I remember seeing that and being curious, and I checked back, and when the poll was finished, eco-fascism had something like two or three percent. It was extremely low, but this was years ago. Um, it, it I, I guarantee you, it would not be that low today.
0: So then, um, your first study was focusing on the thinkers. Uh, were there any surprises? Like, did, did, was there sort of an influence or a thread that kind of just like caught you by surprise? Like, you were just like, "Well, that's weird. Like, why is that there?"
2: Uh-huh.
1: No, I hate. To, I mean, I hate to give a, a lame answer like that, but no, there was nothing surprising about who was popular or what the rankings were. You know, Ted Kaczynski was number one, far and away. Uh, Julius Evola was number two or number three, depending on how on how you count things. Um, all the way down, um, you know, something that I think some people might be interested in is the um, the the presence of, um, legit, I mean, legitimate actual philosophers like um, Martin Heidegger and Ernst Jünger, um, you know, these are uh, philosophers of the far right, um, and they're extremely dense and extremely difficult. And frankly, I question how much um, the people in these spaces citing them are really getting out of them, or whether there is just kind of an aesthetic uh, affinity towards them because they're known as philosophers uh, of the far right. But Jung, Junger and Heidegger uh, are mixed in there, and that might come as a surprise to people, uh, you know, who, who are outside this space. But again, I would just, I, to any of those folks listening, I would say that this is not because um, people in these spaces understand Heidegger. Um, I, I think very few people actually understand Heidegger. Um, I, I think it's because Heidegger is known as the Nazi philosopher, and so, you know, clearly you want you want some quotes from the Nazi philosopher uh, of the environment if you're trying to um, assume a pose that's intellectual uh, on the extreme right and pertaining to ecology.
2: I mean, what's interesting also um, is not necessarily the names that were surprising, but how kind of diverse some of the ideas that they came with, right? So someone like Pentelinkola is a, you know, is an advocate for mass kind of population reduction. Uh, whereas Kaczynski, you know, sent mail bombs to people. So <laughs> and they're not, you know, they're not the same person. Um, and so, you know, you had James Mason on there and, and others as well. And so, um, yeah, I wasn't surprised by the top five or anything like that. It was just, um it's it's always interesting like who they're reading who they're thinking about who they're quoting, um, and and as Brian says it's not necessarily true um, and I know this from having interviewed a lot of uh, former neo Nazis now is is that they don't actually sit down and read cover to cover these books right and and so even their engagement with these thinkers and these books is often memified right it's 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 through uh pulled quotes and pictures and things like that that they kind of engage with some of this content and so most of the appearances uh, of these names on telegram isn't necessarily sharing of pdfs or long kind of essay format conversations it's just pulled quotes and memes that 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 often make the rounds and so um it's it's not so even their engagement with some of these ideas is interesting right it's not necessarily a kind of holistic engagement it's they take what they need um for their broader kind of ideological journey
1: yeah i i was surprised by a couple folks who didn't show up um i I was surprised that um a lot the a lot of the french nouvelle droite uh thinkers uh, uh guillaume fay and um Oh, God, why am I blanking on his name? Importance of being a pagan. Uh, Alain de Benoist. I'm I'm surprised that they didn't show up. Um, You know, uh, I think both of those thinkers uh, probably have more influence in this eco-fascist imaginary than they receive credit for, even from the people who subscribe uh, to to that that identification. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's sort of tangential, but uh, I'm... Fascinated by the way that Guillaume Faye's uh, concept of archaeofuturism has just broken completely free of uh the book that he wrote by that title and now means something completely different you know actually we got a we got a, a question um on on Twitter uh leading up to this there's a, a cartoon um that was circulating recently where you know a, a a family of um, white uh, folks with, I don't know, four or five kids are um, having a picnic under an apple tree or something like that. And in the distance, there's a very small city and then you can see under the ground, um, the, uh, I think it said the, the bodies of dead globalists or something like that. And this is. You know, there's an eco-fascist dimension to that, too. But that actually is what archaeofuturism means in in Fai's writing. Um, You know, it doesn't have to do with lost, you know, lost continents of Atlantis uh, or anything like that. It has to do with um, dense, self-contained urban areas uh, where technology and innovation are encouraged, and then vast, sprawling rural areas where um, Traditional quote unquote lifeways uh, are are kept alive, and you know women frolic in wheat fields wearing you know the traditional costumes uh, of their of their region. But I digress.
2: Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's an eco-fascist component to that image as well. Uh, image, but at the same time, it's just kind of, um, I think, broader anti-modernist um, sentiment that is becoming much more popular. I think all of us are kind of feeling it. COVID had an impact on that, you know, this kind of um, oversaturation of uh, social media, and I think one of the one of the comments there was like books, right? Child reading under a tree with books. He's not on his phone. He's not on his iPad. It's just, he's reading a book, right? It's like very basic return to return to uh, the old ways where things were nicer and calmer and less crazy. And so, um, and yeah, the, the kind of global skeletons mean people who are corporatists, capitalists, uh, trying to take that away and trying to re- redesign nature, but also redesign family, redesign how we think about um peace and serenity, et cetera. And so um, that sort of, and, and this is why I think Brian's earlier sentiment of uh, eco-fascism on the survey is probably larger now uh, is because I think that sentiment, that kind of aesthetic is becoming uh, more and more prevalent. Um, people are feeling a little uneasy, right? Um, and people like Ulrich Beck and so on have talked about this for a long time is that with hyper-modernity, hyper-capitalism, you're going to have a, re- you're gonna have a kind of pushback, right? You're going to have people... Um, Be like that, you know, maybe a kind of uh, full frontal uh, move into the unknown isn't isn't what's good for humanity and so uh, we are going to have people kind of um, ask different questions and, and provide kind of traditional solutions.
1: Yeah, I think it it's legitimate to really dislike the way that our that our lives are nowadays. I hate computers. I hate the internet. I, I really can't stand either one of them. I'm forced to be completely immersed in both as a matter um, you know, as a matter of survival and as a matter of my intellectual curiosity, but it's a morbid intellectual curiosity. You know, it's interesting to see how these things are 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 you know, um uh, affecting such a terrible toll on our, our lives and our communities and our mental health. And I think that one of the really insidious things about um, uh, ecofascism is the way that it grafts uh, these mystical racist and violent uh, notions uh, on top of very real and very legitimate anxieties uh over um the the direction that technological civilization uh has 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 taken. Um, and the thing that might the thing that might differentiate ecofascism from all the other flavor of the month far-right memes that had their little three to six months in the sun and then got um uh replaced by by the newer, fresher model is that the ecological crisis isn't getting better, it's getting worse and it's getting worse faster. Um, so to the extent that that can be um, tied to a far-right uh, political imaginary uh, or um, a far-right political project that ultimately won't do anything to ameliorate our situation, um, you know that's, that's a real danger and that's a real threat. I don't wanna go too off topic, but there is a way that this eco-fascist imaginary and actual far-right policies that are being driven by climate change uh, can feed into one another. I th- the, the case of um, the El Paso Walmart shooting and uh, Trump's um, demagogic border rhetoric is really the perfect example of this, where you have, um, you have uh, mainstream political uh, rhetoric and policies feeding into uh, the actions of uh, violent, uh, violent individual terrorists um and i think that there's actually uh, a feedback le- loop too uh in the same way that the uh the the el paso attacks uh helped bring the great replacement theory more into um uh mainstream dialogue uh and then we see uh that conspiracy theory now informing uh political policy and the agenda of mainstream politicians and people in the mainstream conservative media uh it's it's a um uh, whatever the opposite of a virtuous uh uh loop is it's it's a loop of vice and violence
2: i mean going back to your earlier uh sorry just quickly i mean going back to your earlier question of horseshoeing um i think i think that that's kind of what brian's getting at right It, it is, is it, if you have a kind of left right center mainstream broadly uh, a broadly conceived anxiety around modernity late capitalism etc uh you throw in uh, you know TikTok algorithms on there as you mentioned earlier and and you can kind of end up in different online communities depending on what you click right and and so um you could end up going traveling traveling with Greenpeace or you could end up somewhere else and and I think um, given the kind of broad anxiety around it um, there there is a danger that uh, you know it can it can lead people down different paths depending on what they're looking at and so um, I I think all I think a lot of us feel this general anxiety of, of modernity it's just where you know where you take that uh, and and I think I think the vast majority of people are turn inward i mean there's a really good book about this um the name of which i couldn't possibly remember but <laughs> but there's this no there's this notion that the way westerners deal with um anxiety around climate change and things like that is to go shopping, right? It's, it's basically we buy uh, fluorescent light bulbs and, and recycle more. And so it's very internal fake for forcing. It's not activism necessarily. Um, and and so a lot of people go that route. They turn inward and they protect their families and protect their uh, their loved ones, et cetera. But um, as, we, as we're talking about now, there is a kind of out, outward facing activist, sometimes violent component to it as well.
0: So, I mean, Brian, you seem to have described kind of that infamous meme of the Caterpillar or or I'm putting it politely, but, you know, from 4chan to Fox News to politicians, right? So great replacement theory is, you know, something that you would have like up until recently only have seen in white supremacist forums and then suddenly Tucker Carlson is talking about it. And now suddenly, Donald Trump is talking about it. So I'm curious. With ecofascism, did you see like those pipelines develop? Like, was there a kind of a, a pilling or mainstreaming mechanic when you, you were kind of looking through Telegram and Twitter? did Did adherents kind of think about mainstreaming their ideas? You know, if if we can get great replacement theory on Tucker Carlson, that's a win. Sort of um formulation
1: uh no uh i didn't i didn't see that not the way that you see it on on um, the chan boards
0: so like a follow-up question they like in a more general idea is there an eye towards influencing you know gaining and creating influence or is it more you know more self-contained to Telegram and Twitter. And if that influence happens, it happens.
1: I think actually it's interesting in light of uh, Amar's point about uh, the turning inward in response to uh, climate change and the individualized response to it, because I think in some ways uh, the, the general impression that I got of um, our, our data set was that it was highly individualized. Uh, the The memes um you know would show a single individual in the midst of nature um the the perspective um that uh, as as the viewer or the audience you get when you look at these or read them is one of an individual in the face of some uh inhuman vastness you know something sublime um it isn't it isn't the same um sort of sense of, of social positioning that you get when you're on 4chan, and every other image is uh, a Pepe of some kind, and you're putting up a Pepe too, and you're all kind of losing yourselves in this um, uh, anonymous collectivity of, you know, the, uh, of the, um, the, the poll poster. Uh, it, the, the, the imagery and the effective sense that it gives you um, as as a viewer uh, is much more individualistic and, and atomized, which is ironic, but, um, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was interesting um, to watch as well. And I, I don't know if this is a Telegram specific phenomenon, because I have seen communities pop up on Telegram uh, around QAnon and other movements, but um, it didn't feel community uh, on, on on the on the eco-fascist side of things. Uh, a lot of them were channels, and so it was just kind of one way um spreading of information, but even the groups um didn't necessarily have a communal feel like uh you would find if you walked into basically any QAnon forum or a q a QAnon telegram group or uh you know or things around the so-called freedom convoy or anything like that. This kind of um constant back and forth and 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 uh creativity around what they're gonna say, what 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 they're pissed off about next. Um this seemed a bit I don't know old hat <laughs> it's just like here's here's this you know here's the same old argument from from decades ago um you know brian said it earlier of, of kind of the lack of new ideas and i think that that's probably relevant here as well even even as they take it online the memes are where i think some of this happens but it's not enough it's not enough by you know by itself to kind of really do much
1: yeah and, and you know uh... A lot of times, some people think all the time, uh, political ideology is adopted um based on a person's pre-existing temperament. You know, people have feelings, they have social tendencies, they have things that they viscerally like and dislike, and they find the political ideology that comports to that sensibility that, that they already bring to it. It, it. Obviously, it's that's a grossly oversimplified description of it, but that dynamic is at play, uh, among others. People who are going to adopt uh, an eco-fascist sensibility, um, one which is misanthropic, anti-civilizational, are going to tend to be people who probably uh, don't derive a lot of gratification from socializing with a lot of other people. If you compare that to QAnon, which is a highly social um, movement, you know, you get a lot of influence from things like um, megachurches and uh, the self-help community and new age communities. These are people who temperamentally are very comfortable uh, with socializing in one form or another. So ideologically, and, you know, in terms of their belief system, they adopt uh, a belief system that's tied to a movement that's more highly social.
2: Yeah. The other thing, just to jump off that, is QAnon isn't necessarily Illegal or clandestine, right? And so they're, they're, they they do have this offline organizing component. Whereas um, one of the things we talk about in the paper, which was surprising, is is a lot of the um, there's no real organizational drive offline, right? Um, and and so you know when mentions of things like uh, Waffen or the base or um, hardcore other groups necess- doesn't necessarily show up as much. And so there wasn't a Uh, kind of commitment to this offline organizing, even if it was clandestine. And and so until I think some sort of organizational component pops up on the ground, you know, to hit the streets or to recruit or whatever, um, it's just going to live in meme land. And and as much as that's, you know, more and more influential, it's at the same time uh, limiting in its own way.
1: Yeah, meme land can inspire people to to go kill. offline. Yeah, yeah um, but but what Amar said is is right on. You know, if you spend any time uh, talking to folks who are very concerned about climate change and trying to um, have contingency plans or do what they can as individuals to help restore the environment, you know, the, one of the most common things that you hear is, "Well, by by." as many acres of land as you can and plant chestnut trees. Uh, because chestnut trees uh, produce a, a great volume of, um, of nutrition. You can more or less live on chestnuts. And then after you have all these chestnut groves, release some pigs. And the pigs will go feral, and they'll eat the chestnuts. And you can harvest the chestnuts and eat the pigs. And there, you've created a sustainable local ecosystem. Again, probably uh, grossly uh, simplistic. Uh, But it's also the kind of thing that with three or four uh, interested, motivated individuals, a person with a decent day job could make happen. Uh, You know, we, we, we don't see anything like that. We haven't recognized any patterns like that emerging out of these spaces, which really says something
2: one charismatic leader away you know like the, the all the charismatic leaders are from the 70s and 80s basically and um, you know the ones who wrote the books and gave the ideas but there's no yeah there's no momentum
1: and i think there's something to be said too that for a movement that is entirely online that makes it difficult for charismatic leaders to emerge because the um, qualities that you need to succeed as um, an online demagogue are different from the ones that you need to succeed as a charismatic leader offline. Uh, the the things that help a person succeed in the uh, the world of um, uh, far right communication spaces are things that uh, are are poison when it comes to offline organizing. Interesting.
0: So. We've been talking for about an hour, um and I think we've we've covered a lot uh obviously, like to the audience, go read the paper. It is provocative it is it's also a great way for me at least it was a great introduction to eco fascism uh to think about not to believe in <laughs> I have to be super clear
1: <laughs> um thank you sina uh
0: of course um i think we we have reached to the legendary last question, which is um, leave us, you know, me and the audience with something to think about, something to chew on, a, a research thread, however you want to approach this question, but leave us uh, with something to think about before we leave for the day. And I'll, I'll start with Amar. Um,
2: hmm. I mean, I, I I do think you know, with all of the debates around ecofascism, a lot of the debate, online debates that happened around the you know Texas shooting and things like that, it, it is we are, I think, moving as a field into. Um, a kind of aesthetic space uh, which needs to be better understood, needs to be better researched, needs to be kind of rigorously researched. Um, so it's not just kind of I found these five memes and therefore I have a c- conclusion to make. Um, and and so I, I and I, th- I think um, because it's so nebulous, um, and I, I've tweeted about this a few times, is is because it's so nebulous, it, there does need to be more. Public writing around it, there does need to be a kind of educational component around it for older scholars or senior scholars. Because, um, you know, as much as this field has, and I'm talking like extremism studies, terrorism studies, has evolved over the last 20 years since 9 11, um, there are kind of blind spots there and there are kind of assumptions of what extremism looks like and what terrorism is supposed to look like, sometimes colored by what Al Qaeda was or what, um, you know, um, Oklahoma City bombing or things like that and so um, if we are moving to broader if we are moving to different kinds of um, ways in which this is manifesting um, uh, you know I, I hope people um, aren't kind of shy to talk about it and and write about it and and, and think about it and kind of you know uh, educate the rest of us on it because I, I, I do find that some of it just exists on Twitter and I'm not convinced um, that that's where it should be <laughs> so
1: yeah, I co-sign all of that. Uh I speaking, you know, this is I love the Loopcast because you you do get to be a little bit inside baseball. We need to be building more and more networks that aren't on social media as ways of discussing these issues so that they can be discussed with a little more seriousness, a little more detail and depth and so that disagreements can be handled collegially. Uh, without the perverse incentives of, of, um, you know, likes and retweets and quote tweets and dunking and all that bullshit. Um, So yeah, I co-sign everything Amar said. Uh, I'll go off in a slightly different direction and say that um, if you really care about, uh, you know, far right or extreme right violence and uh, ecology, the place where we really need to be focusing some attention is on, um, is on border policy. It's on border policy and immigration policy uh, because those are going to be some of the front lines uh, of, um, of where ecology and uh, the extreme right and the far right political project meet. There are a few great books. There are three books that I recommend to everyone. Um, there's one called Blood Red Lines. That's about uh, border fascism. One called End of the Myth that's also about uh the border in relation to, to uh US history. And then um there's a third one called Hinterlands uh by a writer named Phil Neal, um, that is uh a little bit orthogonal to all of that, uh, but it's really an excellent book about um the ways that uh our uh rural and ex-urban um regions here in the United States uh uh are the front lines uh, for some of these uh, emerging political conflicts and the the new identities of extremism.
0: Awesome. Great, great, great insight. Uh, That was Amar and Brian. Uh, They've written a paper called Ecofascism, an examination of the far-right ecology nexus in the online space. They co-authored it with Davy Jones, who couldn't be here today. Um, Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show.
2: Awesome, had a great time. Thank you. Right on, right on.